Let's take our Bibles, if you will, please. Turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. <clears throat> For those of you visiting with us in our communion services this year, we've been looking at the Lord Jesus Christ as the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, and his messages to the seven churches of the book of Revelation. Today we're in chapter 3, verse 1, and let's read together down through verse 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you, have re- uh, how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Every church has a corporate name. Our name indicates a geographical location and a denominational affiliation, Finger Lakes Baptist Church. Some churches might pick a biblical concept such as faith or grace. Uh, If a denominational attachment's not desired, it seems like the going thing today is a community church. But how many of you have ever attended a church named Death Baptist? Or perhaps the community church of the living dead? Or as my old pastor used to say, the first church of rigor mortis? Surely we would not attend such a congregation Uh, because of the negative affiliation. But are there not many churches today whose doors are open every Sunday? They may be full of people who profess to be Christian, who claim to be spiritually alive, but in reality, they're dead, and they're desperately in need of revival. This was the case in the city of Sardis, which Christ addressed the church there, You have a name that you're alive, but you're really dead. Sardis, as a city, had a rich history extending 1,200 years beyond the, uh, or before Christ. It was a well-populated trade center of the eastern and western world. Some noted that it was similar to the hub of a wheel, with its spokes reaching out to many other destinations in the world because of the trade routes that went through there. The city had a notable acropolis or high point standing 1,500 feet above sea level. It had sheer rock walls on three sides, which made it virtually an impregnable fortress of its day. In its long history, only two kings were able to conquer the city Cyrus the Persian, and Antiochus the Great. 
And like all the other cities of the area in John's day who wrote Revelation, it was a city full of idolatry. It had a temple dedicated to Artemis, which was as large as the one in Ephesus, a central location of that worship in the whole world, but they never completed it. Outwardly, the city appeared to be healthy and thriving, but inwardly, it was morally decadent and dying a slow death. And today, if you went to this location, you would just find a very small village named Sart located there. Unfortunately, the Church of Christ developed the dying character of the city. It looked vibrant, perhaps, on the outside, but there was really little vitality on the inside. The Lord says only a remnant of his people was truly living for Christ. It was a dying church in desperate need of revival. And Christ's message to this ancient church is much needed in his postmodern church today. So let's ask his blessing on the preaching of his word this morning. Heavenly Father, once again, we're dependent upon you uh, to understand your word today and make application of it. We're thankful, Lord, that you gave these messages to churches so long ago, yet they're still adaptable to us today. Lord, we're living in a time where many churches on the outside appear to be alive, but they're full of folks who don't even know you as their Savior. And Lord, we realize that even churches that are preaching the truth of the gospel may have those in their midst that really aren't that close to you and are worried about a whole lot more things in life than serving the Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us to uh, apply the words of Scripture today. As we come before your table, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, the first thing we want to look at today from this passage is the communication about Christ himself as he gives to each of these seven churches. And he's always associating certain characteristics about himself that have been revealed back in chapter 1, and two of them are revealed here. First of all, we're told that uh, the Lord Jesus, the Alpha Omega, uh, has the seven spirits. He holds the seven spirits in his hand. Now, the number seven in the Bible, you, most of you know, depicts fullness or completion. And we've already identified this phrase as a figurative expression of the fullness of the Holy Spirit back in chapter 1 and verse 4. Now, it's interesting that if you go into the Old Testament, a passage such as Isaiah chapter 11, it's prophesied there that the Spirit of God will be evident upon the branch who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Spirit is described there in a sevenfold way. First of all, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and then the spirit of wisdom and wisdom, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So we have here a picture of the Holy Spirit uh, in its relationship to the churches. And it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that this dying church in Sardis can be revived. It's only through his might that any church can maintain its spiritual vitality as its members submit to his control in their lives. We're also told here that Christ holds the seven stars, identified earlier as the seven angels or messengers of the churches. 
This demonstrates his control, his authority over them as their sovereign Lord, and by extension, as they go and give these messages to the seven churches, he shows that he's sovereign over the church as well. So he has the divine right to scrutinize his churches and the people that make them up and inform them of their successes, their failures, and their needs. And his purpose always is that they might be conformed to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 1 also, we have something unusual that we haven't seen in the previous ver- um, uh, uh, record of the churches that we've talked about. And that is there's no con- uh, commendation given to this church. Uh, what we have in verse 1, the second part, is a condemnation instead. And the only combination is given to just a few faithful people remaining in this church. So this conveys the great need for revival in their midst. And he begins with a reminder that we ought to be thoughtful of today as he says, I know your works. I know everything about you as a church and as the people which make that church up. He knows your works. He knows my works. He knows whether or not they are fake or they're real. He knows whether they're genuine or hypocritical, right, wrong, good, bad. Christ knows your condition and mine perfectly. There's nothing that's hid from his sight. And so with that perfect knowledge, he explains to them his complaint. And it's a pretty serious one. You have a name that you're alive, but you're really not. You're really dead. So what does this mean? A church or a professing Christian may have a reputation of being alive. After all, the name of Christ is the name of the Son of God, the Savior of mankind, the perfectly holy Son of Man, the founder of the gospel of salvation. But you can profess that name and even have a good outward uh, reputation in your community, yet you can be dead inside or dying. And there are many churches today that claim to bear the name of Christ. Christendom has a huge umbrella. And these Churches may have impressive buildings. They may have countless social programs, uh, perhaps a rich heritage, a long list of missionaries, yet they don't really preach the true gospel. And just because you identify yourself with Christianity or you're conservative in your ideology or you're a member of a church and you attend its services, you put money in the plate, you listen to the sermons, Uh, You're involved in the worship, but that doesn't mean you have a living, vibrant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You You can appear to be a good Christian on the outside, but dead is a graveyard on the inside. In the words of the Lord Jesus Christ to the scribes and Pharisees of his day, who were super religious people, by the way, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy 
and lawlessness. Now the church at Sardis had become like the city of Sardis. Since the Roman peace and the cessation of conflict in the world, Sardis had entered kind of a death-producing peace. Herodotus, a historian, commented that the peace of this city was like the peace of a man whose dreams are dead and whose mind is asleep, the peace of lethargy and evasion. One commentator wrote about this church, they were void of real vitality and genuine fruitfulness. They had sunk into a deep sleep, which if not interrupted would issue in death. And in some ways, the church in America is similar to that. Have we not been put to sleep by our freedom to worship and religious protection? We have our good jobs, our good incomes. We have relative freedom from suffering and persecution. We've kind of fallen asleep in our lethargy, our complacency, our apathy and evasion. And it's only been the last couple of years we've begun to start waking up as we see our culture rapidly imploding before our very eyes. And we may wonder how a living church begins to die and develop uh, the need for revival. So let me give you some suggestions. And we can really kind of draw these uh, things from what Christ says by way of warning to the church. First of all, when you focus on this outward appearance rather than inner substance, you've begun to die. Even in evangelical circles, we seem to be vying over who wins the most souls, who performs the most baptisms, who has the most buildings, the biggest offerings, the longest missionary list. And we have people in the pews suffering because the preaching is not expository and really helpful to their lives. We may have an outward demeanor of orthodoxy, but lack a truly spiritual relationship with Christ. Secondly, when you conform to the culture, rather than try to transform it, you're again getting into trouble. Unfortunately, the church today is rapidly conforming to our changing culture. Many condone and support gay rights and all that's associated with that agenda. They are being deceived by critical race theory and a false sense of social justice. And we're bowing to the sexuality of our country that really is kind of tainting everything, even down into the grade schools. We've had, in a large extent, uh, vacate our public education system because of its moral and spiritual erosion. We're also avoiding the reproach of standing up uh, for what is holy, for what is righteous, because we're afraid to speak out, thinking we're going to get vilified for it. So there's a danger when we don't want to stand up for what's right and true. And then when the word of God loses its preeminence in the pulpit and in the pew, we begin to lose our moorings and drift into the 
uh, into the current of ecclesiastical death, if you will. So how then do we correct this drifting into deadness? Well, the Lord Jesus gives them, uh, gives us some thoughts here in verses 2 and 3 as we see the correction of Christ. Note what he says. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. So first of all, he says to this dying church, be watchful, wake up, be alert, keep on being vigilant. This is in the present tense as a commandment. And so he's trying to wake them up from this uh, perilous slumber. Uh, they need to be jarred awake. She was not paying attention to her spiritual slide into a comatose state. It's interesting that on the two occasions that the city of Sardis fell, it was at her strongest point and her lack of being vigilant. We're told that when Cyrus besieged the city, one of his alert scouts observed a a, a Sardian soldier uh, climbing down one of the steep cliff sides to retrieve a helmet that had fallen off the wall. So he carefully watches this person as they make their way down and then collect the uh, helmet and make their way back up. And that night, under the cover of darkness, a troop of soldiers followed that pathway and overcame the city because nobody was there at the watchtower because they didn't think anybody could come up that way. They lacked vigilance. And under the same circumstances, Antiochus took the city nearly three centuries later because they weren't vigilant at that point. And the enemy always takes advantage when we're not watchful. You remember what Peter warned us? He said, be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil walks about like a a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. When we let down our spiritual guard, when we fall asleep at the wheel of our soul, we are on a collision course with spiritual rigor mortis. Secondly, the Lord tells us to be mindful of the areas of your life that may need strengthening. He says, strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. Now, the Lord Jesus reveals that the works of this church in that same verse were imperfect. They were shy of fullness or completeness. And again, the city of Sardis They started to build a a, a temple to one of their false gods, but they never completed it. The work remained unfinished, incomplete. And we need to be careful that we, as God's people, maintain our concern to always be growing in Christ. To not allow the work he has begun in us to be lacking. We're to be constantly building on that foundation. We never rest. We never quit. We never fall asleep on the job. We're eager to place another spiritual brick or stone in our life that will bring us closer to the perfections of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and we ought to be taking regular inventory so that the areas of weakness can be uh, observed and strengthened. Am I in the word of God? Am I listening when it's preached to me? Am I depending on the Holy Spirit to empower my walk with God? Am I serving the Lord in some capacity? Am I praying for my needs and those of others? And the list could go on and on to find the areas where I need to be strengthened and secured. So how do we go about doing this? Well, we look at verse 3. And the Lord Jesus gives three more admonitions to a dying church that needs to be uh, revived. And there are three uh, verbs here that draw our attention. First of all, in verse 3, remember. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Remember the past. Now, this is a present tense again. And that means that we should be in a consistent state of reminding ourselves of what we have learned from the scriptures. As all true churches, Sardis began as a result of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The people responded to uh, the work of Christ at Calvary. They heard that he died for their sins. He rose again to show his power over sin, death, and Satan. And those who believed became the nucleus of the church there. And they were taught biblical truth on how to live uh, for the Lord and serve him. And those truths have to be maintained in your personal life. And you have to build on them and avoid the spiritual slumber and lack of vitality that had crept into this ancient church. In the world in which we live and the flesh in which we must abide and the devil will all try to make us forget or ignore what we have learned. So we have to be vigilant, watchful, uh, and remember where we've come from and what the Lord wants us to do. Secondly, the Lord says, hold fast. There are so many folks, they start out right, but they don't hold fast and they go off into the slumber uh, of, uh, of this uh, death in Sardis. Uh, this also is a present tense verb, so it's something you're always to be doing consistently holding fast to the truth that you have accepted through the Lord Jesus. Um, The saints who persevere are those who are holding fast to what they've heard, to what they've received. And in an age in which the church is engulfed in a postmodern culture, no longer really fully Christian, faithful believers have to hold fast to the truth and stand against ills of our society while we try to reach it with the gospel of Christ. And thirdly, he says, repent. Well, we all know what that means. If we fail to stay awake, uh, uh, if we fail to remember what we have received, if we fail to hold fast, then we need to repent of that condition. And that calls uh, for a once-for-all action, a determination to wake up now and to remember again and to hold fast again and keep on going. So it's not just referring here to the initial turning away 
uh, from sin to the Savior, but a turning away from all that which hinders our walk with him, it's central to a revived life. So the Lord Jesus tells us how to correct this condition, but note how he ends this in verse 3, part B. This correction closes with a stern warning. He says, Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. So if the church or an individual fails to repent, it will be ill-prepared for his coming. Now, this is not really an individual warning to believers or this particular church that the Lord is going to come upon them in some kind of judgment right now. Chastisement for our sins is taught elsewhere in Scripture, but this warning is cloaked in Christ's words associated with his second coming, with his return. And he warns us constantly to be ready, to be waiting, to be watching. And if you're slowly dying, you're not in a place where you're ready for that coming, which is imminent, could happen at any time. So we don't want to be spiritually asleep or lethargic when he returns. If we are that way, we're not expecting it. We're not watchful. We're not prepared. And he's going to catch us by surprise. And that day will not be as happy as it could be for us. So we don't want to be half dead in our relationship to the Lord. We don't want to be found in a state where we're going to disappoint him when he arrives. We're eagerly looking for and desiring that day to come. And we want to be in closest possible relationship to him as we can be. Otherwise, we're going to be disappointed as well as the Lord. So that's a very powerful incentive for the church to wake up and to hold fast. Now, in verse 4, there is a commendation of Christ to a faithful remnant. Not the whole church, but just a few souls that are there. He, uh, excuse me, verse 4, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. The cause of Christ wasn't entirely lost then in this place. There were still a few who were pure and faithful in their lifestyle. The idea there of undefiled garments as a metaphor for pure and holy living. They had not been soiled or polluted by the pagan culture in which they lived. They had not compromised their biblical standards to avoid persecution. They were truly living vibrantly for Christ, standing up for him, and standing out for him. <clears throat> they were worthy, not so much for their own works, but that they remained faithful and true to their Lord. They were persevering in a church that was dying because of its lethargy and worldly compromise. And the Lord says, these will walk with him in white. Well, that's an allusion to uh, the eternal state in the next age, white signifying purity, holiness, 
absence of sin, and it's always in contrast to darkness in the Word of God uh, in everything that's associated with. So the Lord repeats this concept in his consolation to the church in verse 5. He says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So these three words of comfort and promise given to those who overcome, uh, who have been walking with the Lord, who have been right in their relationship. First of all, they shall be clothed in white garments. One commentator said this, an eternal declaration of inward joy, victory, purity, and heavenly, uh, and heavenly state is the idea behind the white garments. It reflects the perfected state in which the believer will live with Christ forever. In Revelation 19, uh, white raiment depicts the righteous character of the saints. As it says there, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then the Lord says, their names shall never be blotted out of the book of life. Now we don't have time to really go into detail into the book of life, But I believe that, as it's mentioned elsewhere in the Bible, it's speaking of a book in which all the names of all the living have been placed. And we we believe the Bible teaches that Christ died for all. His death was sufficient to pay the price of all sins of all humanity. But at the same time, we realize his death is only sufficient for those Uh, or or I should say efficient for those who come to him in faith. And so those who reject him, they will be blotted out of that book at the time of their death. So the faithful, persevering saint who has trusted Christ will never be erased from that book. And finally, the Lord Jesus says that he will confess our name before his father, and before his angels. So this again is the future look, the the future prospect. The Lord Jesus on that day will personally vouch for our salvation before God the Father and his holy angels. That will be the greatest day of our life. No fear of condemnation, no fear of death or hell, only the commendation of Christ himself. And this reminds us of another teaching of Jesus back in Matthew chapter 10, where he says, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him will I confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So the Lord Jesus Christ gives this correction to a church that was dying. And we need to draw some applications from that. First of all, well, someone might think our church is dead or dying. After all, 75% of our adult congregation is 60 or older. Uh, 
We're all dying, but that doesn't mean you have to be spiritually dying, does it? One-third of our congregation are children or teenagers, so that's the future of the church. But it doesn't really matter how old you are to experience vibrant life in the Lord Jesus Christ, as this passage informs us. Most of us here today have a reputation that we know Christ, but are we living up to it? Are we real on the inside as we may appear to be on the outside? Are you in need of revival today? Have you fallen asleep spiritually? Do you have the inner vitality of Christ giving you joy each day? Do you need to wake up? Do you need to be strengthened in your walk with him in some way? Do you need to remember what you've learned in the past and hold fast to it in the present? Is there some area in your life where you need repentance? Well, there's no better time to make that kind of an assessment as right now before we come to the Lord's table. And finally, that forward look. Do you look forward to Christ's coming? Are you prepared for it? Are you living the way you ought to be? And in that day, you will walk with him in white, looking forward to his confession of your faithfulness before the Heavenly Father. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you today for your word, for its truth, for its reality. And Lord, we pray today you'll help us to be thoughtful of its meaning. Lord, we know that we can appear to be one way on the outside, but feeling a totally different way on the inside. Uh, We pray, Lord, you'd help us not to be hiding the truth of that inner reality by a false outward um, profession. Help us, Lord, to be concerned about our walk with you. Help us, Lord, not to fall asleep. Help us not to move in the direction of uh, spiritual death within. And as we come before your table, help us be thankful for what Christ did to give us initial life and what he continues to do through his spirit to keep us alive and vibrant and walking close to you. We ask your continued blessing in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.